Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. This week is the final week of the gods. How many of you guys have really enjoyed this series? Yeah, awesome. It's been, I would say what, I've really enjoyed it. I want to invite a special guest today, um, and uh, his name is Pastor Gil Dukeman, and uh, he's going to come, and uh, we want to kind of give you a kind of a behind-the-scenes kind of look into some of the stuff that, um, kind of where we get these series, and, um, and Pastor Gil, you work really hard on these. You you spend a lot of time studying. You spend a lot of time um, in prayer, and... Um, what inspired? What ins- what inspires these series? What inspired the gods? Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Um, you know, we often get asked questions about the genesis of the series that we do and the particular talks and messages that we bring. And I wish I could tell you that somewhere in seminary uh, they gave me this strategy. Right? They they taught me a class on how you do this thing, but that's that's not the case. You know, here at Grace Crossing Church, this is really both a science and it's an art. And it really begins, and it it leans heavily into two things, prayer and creativity. Um, I can tell you that what you see on Sunday mornings is always a result of teamwork. And so what we begin with is just kind of, where's my heart? Like, what do I feel like God is doing in prayer? And what, you know, what kind of message and emphasis does God have for the family, the community of faith here at Grace Crossing Church? And then it there, it goes into a process that's heavy in Scripture, uh, planning and, and uh, uh, research. And Josh Bertram, our family life director, actually is a part of that team that does kind of some of the research and the study side of things. From there, it moves into a creative planning process, and Jamie does a lot of the heavy lifting with me and our team in this side of the, uh, of the creativity on how we deliver this to make it both meaningful and memorable every Sunday morning. And so I can tell you that what is birthed out of my heart as a theme and an idea uh, is really on Sunday mornings the result of teamwork. I do not carry this thing alone. Uh, I get the privilege of delivering it, but it's really the result of our team working together in tandem uh, through prayer and creativity. And I remember the genesis of this one. We were standing back at uh, the tech booth. You were doing some work, and I had come over, and I was just kind of leaning over the the, uh, counter there, and we were talking, and I was sharing with you about just the revelation I felt I had about the first and second commandment, how heavy they were on these multiple gods, and, uh, and how God said, no other gods, no idols. And, and we just began to talk, and this word, the gods, just kind of came off the page at us and stuck. And so that's kind of where this series began. But, but important for all of us to know, man, this is, a, this is birthed out of a lot of teamwork following prayer. Yeah, uh, sometimes you just, there's always a point in the week or when we're planning a series when you get the aha moment. You're like, that's it. That's it. And I love it. That's no better feeling when that time comes because then you can actually get to work and get your stuff done. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, we've been talking about all these different gods um, during this series. And a key to recognizing a God in our life is to be honest about who, about what and who we are worshiping. And how can we identify what it is we worship? Man, that's a great question. And, you know, in honesty, that is the crux of the matter about the gods, isn't it? I mean, I think really to find out what and who we worship, you have to really look at two things. You have to look at value and you have to look at sacrifice. Because really, what we value the most is what we worship best. 
And, and equally, what we value most is what we'll make the greatest level of sacrifice for. So when you think about figuring out what it is, what gods compete with the Lord God in your life, all you really got to do is ask yourself a couple of questions. What do I value most? And what am I willing to sacrifice the most for? You know, I've often told people it this way. If you follow the trail of your time and your treasures and your, your loyalties and your allegiances, if you follow the trail of what you value most and what you sacrifice most for, at the end of that trail, there's a throne. Whatever is on that throne, in other words, whatever we value the most, whatever we sacrifice for the most, sits on a throne. And, and whatever it is that sits on the throne at the end of the trail is what I believe we worship. Now, here's the kicker. The trail never lies. You can always know if you follow the trail, it will point you to that which you worship. So I think, I think at the end of the day, this God series is all about that. What do we love the most? What do we value the most? What do we sacrifice for the most? Yeah, great, great answer. Um, a couple weeks ago, um, we had a, a Mother's Day. We had a speaker, Ashley Bertram, which is Pastor Gill's daughter, chip off the old block, did a wonderful job, a great, great talk that day. And uh, she talked about the God of perfectionism. Any struggle there? I'm getting set up. I can just tell. I... No comment. No comment. Can't do that. You got to comment. <laughs> Actually, you know, she did a brilliant job that day. And, and what Ashley talked about I thought was just spot on. She, she talked about the two arms of perfectionism, the, the arm of control and the arm of approval. And there's no doubt about it. Uh, I deal with the arm of control. I like when I have my arms around my world. I, I like when I know how things are going. I like when I'm the one who's calling the shots in what's happening in life. And so, and so I think there's no doubt about it. This, this aspect, this arm of the God of perfectionism is one that I daily have to dethrone uh, because it will compete for my trust in God that he is in control and God's got everything taken care of and I don't have to worry about it. And to be honest with you, I think it's a part of what this 40 days of renewal that we're about to move into uh, is really all about at the end of the day. Um, and here's what I mean. I know that Jesus is the great shepherd of Grace Crossing Church. Um, I know that this is his church, but it's my baby, right? So, so because I helped plant this thing, we got this thing launched, um, I feel a sense of, of just ownership. And reality is, theologically and intellectually, I know he's the great shepherd, I'm the under-shepherd, but experientially, I think it's good for me to realize that experientially. And I, I think the 40 days are going to allow me to do that, to recognize that at the end of the day, God's the one who is in control of his church. Yeah. I, I've worked for a lot of different pastors, and I can honestly say this is one that Pastor Gill has actively worked on. And, and I tell you what, one thing I respect about Pastor Gill is he's growing himself. Um, he doesn't just say, hey, we need to grow. And, and a lot of the pastors I worked for, that's the way it was. They weren't really... They kind of were there where they were, and that was it, and that's what they believe. Pastor Gill, that's why it's so easy to follow is because we know he's doing these things. He's, str he's struggling. He's trying. He's working. He's uh, working hard to grow, and we appreciate about that about you, Pastor. Um, one more question. What do you think motivates the gods of the 21st century? Well, I think the motivation actually is what we're talking about today. Uh, I think... I think the final God that we're going to talk about is the impetus, the motivation 
behind all the other gods that we spoke about in this series. So, so if you allow me, I'm just going to jump right into our talk here and get started. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to jump right into our talk. So do I have to go Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Let's express appreciation right. to Jamie here. Let let me let me use that as a segue to give you the framework of the of the passage that we have been using for this series. It's found in Colossians chapter 3, and here's what it says. Since you became alive again, so to speak, when Christ arose from the dead, now set your sights on the rich treasures and the joys of heaven, where he sits beside God in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about the things down here. You should have as little desire for this world as a dead person does. Your real life is in heaven with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our real life, comes back again, he will sh- you will shine with him and share in all of his glories. Away then with sinful, earthly things. Deaden the evil desires lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, shameful desires. Don't worship the good things of life, for that is idolatry. Now, what we've been doing every week is we've been looking at a unique nuance of this text, and we've been drawing out some principles and applications. The one I want to focus on today is in that final statement, deaden the evil desires lurking within you. The most dangerous things in our life, the things that are most harmful to our relationship with God are not the things out there. They are the things right in here. The things that cause us the greatest danger don't live far away. In fact, they live in the attic of our soul. One of the things about every God that we've talked about is that they all share something in common, and it's this. Every single one of them come from within. And so when we look at this, we've got to understand the significance of recognizing that the gods that compete for our allegiance to the loyalty of Jesus Christ, placing him as the Lord of our life on the throne, are those things from within. And Jesus actually speaks about this. It's interesting that at one point, the Pharisees, who by the way were the first germaphobes that ever lived, okay, Now, I know some of you know me, think I'm a germaphobe. I had nothing compared to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all these ceremonial laws, and a bunch of their laws had to do with ceremonial cleansing and ceremonial washing. In fact, there was a law that required them to actually wash their hands religiously before they would touch food, before they would eat. And one day they see Jesus and his disciples getting ready to have a meal, and they don't wash their hands. And, and the Pharisees hit the proverbial ceiling. They, they say, how dare you eat food without first washing your hands? Now, Jesus makes a really important statement that I don't want us to miss in Mark chapter 7. Here's what he says. There is nothing that people put into their bodies that makes them unclean. People are made unclean by the things that come out of them. When Jesus left the people, went into his house, His followers, the church, asked him about the story. Jesus said, do you still not understand? Surely you know that nothing that enters a person from the outside can make that person unclean. 
It does not go into the mind, but it goes into the stomach. Then it goes out of the body. When Jesus said this, he meant that, that no longer was any food unclean for people to eat. And Jesus said the things that come out of people are the things that make them unclean. Now listen to the list. All these evil things begin inside people, in the mind. Evil thoughts, sexual sins, stealing, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions, lying, doing sinful things, jealousy, speaking evil of other people, pride, foolish living. All these evil things come from inside and make people unclean. Every one of us in this auditorium are guilty as charged. Because every single one of us at times in our life have had those kind of things that are coming out of us, and it's those things that are within us that make us unclean. So that which is most harmful to us doesn't live far away. That is no more true than when it comes to the final God we're going to talk about today, the God of happiness. Now, before I dive into this God, I need to set the record straight. I am not anti-happiness, okay? I am not a happiness hater. If we are taking a vote today, I'm pro-happy, right? I like happy. I want happy. But there is a limitation with happiness, and here it is. Happiness is always dependent on circumstances. So if tomorrow you go to your job and you find out you're getting a raise, yay, I'm happy. That's a great thing, isn't it? We're all happy. More happiness. If you show up tomorrow at work and the boss you don't get along with tells you he's quitting, yay, happy, right? That makes us all happy. And I am not against that kind of happiness. But what happens when the circumstances of your life don't come together? What happens when the stars don't align? What happens when you go to your doctor and what you want to hear is you're getting better, but what you hear is you're getting worse, you're getting, you're getting sicker? What happens when that job that you thought you deserve a raise at, you find out by that boss that we are downsizing, and you are actually going to not only make less money, you're getting canned. You don't even have a job any longer. What then? What happens when that person that you have fallen in love with, that you think that's the person that's going to make me happy, What happens when that single person tells you, I've decided to marry someone else? What then? Because every one of us, and I don't want you to have a show of hands here, but every one of us have heard statements like this. I'll be happy when I'm married to the right person. All of us have heard statements like this. Landing that job will make me happy. All of us have heard people say, if I had a little less debt and a little more money, I'd be happier. I can't be happy if I have to live without, and you can fill in the blank. Reality is, happiness is circumstantial. Because what we tend to use as a gauge for how happy we are, we measure our happiness by what is happening in the circle of our life. So if we have little, little pain and if we have little displeasure, We have lots of happiness, right? We generally gauge our happiness by the freedom from pain and the freedom from displeasure. But when pain is great and when displeasure is off the charts, we experience less and less happiness. So is pain and displeasure a good, reliable barometer to use? 
for happiness? I don't think so. There was actually a study that was done by psychologists a number of years ago with first-time homeowners. And what they wanted to evaluate was how happy a person was when they lived in their home after a certain amount of time. And what they discovered was not so surprising. They discovered that people that lived in a trailer park community but had the largest mobile home were actually happier than people that lived in a modest middle-class home surrounded by a lot of big mansions. Isn't that interesting? And it's all because happiness is a relative emotion. Our happiness is all based on how our life is going compared to them. How nice is our car compared to their cars? How nice is our home compared to their homes? How good is my job and my retirement compared to their situation? How good is my spouse compared to that spouse? And what we tend to do is we tend to evaluate our level of happiness based upon other people. Paul spoke about this. And here's what he said in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. When they measure themselves with themselves and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding and they behave unwisely. So when we are driven, when our life is driven by this comparison mentality, it will often leave us feeling very, very unhappy. So what does the God of happiness do? Well, the God of happiness tells us two primary lies that it wants us to believe in, hook, line, and sinker. And here are the two lies of the God of happiness. The first lie is that we are entitled to happiness. The first lie is, I am entitled to happiness. If we're honest, every single one of us here this morning are guilty of living our lives with a sense of entitlement. And happiness is one of those things to which we feel that we are entitled to. If you look at mass marketing, what you discover is that mass marketing is built very heavily on a promise of happiness. Buy this, you'll be happy. Vacation here, you'll be happy. Look like this person, become like that, you'll be happy. And no wonder, this is built into the bedrock of the very foundation of our nation. The Declaration of Independence makes the claim. We believe and hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most of us are in hot pursuit after the God of happiness. And we've made that our big ambition, our final aim of life, to be happy. The danger in that is that that ideology can become this out-of-control, self-absorbed kind of God that can be all about making sure that our needs are satisfied, to make sure that our uh, choices go the way that we desire them to go. And if we're not careful, this monster called happiness can take on a life of its own. C.S. Lewis actually spoke about this when he said this. He said, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, classes, 
empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And so is there anything wrong with the Declaration of Independence? Absolutely not. I think the trouble with it is the way that we interpret it here in the 21st century. Because when we think about happiness, it is not what the founding authors had in mind when they penned it. The founding authors, just a little history for us, were largely influenced by what was known as the Scottish Enlightenment. And the Scottish Enlightenment was was kind of led by a guy named Francis Hutcheson. They were all familiar with him. They were all influenced by his teaching, and he taught that the highest aim of a person's life is happiness, but not in a narcissistic and not in a hedonistic sense, but rather happiness in the sense of making the life of others happy. Now listen, that slight change changes everything. Compare that with what Sigmund Freud has taught, who's now the father of modern-day psychology, who taught that happiness is man's chief ambition, chief aim, and that happiness is the fulfillment of man's instincts. So whatever it is we feel, whatever it is that we have an impulse toward, is what we should go after because that is what is going to make us happy at the end of the day. Now which is it? Is it living for others or is it living for self that brings ultimate happiness? Well, researchers at the University of Oregon did a survey some years back, and they wanted to evaluate the measurements in a person's brain for how they responded to when they were given a sum of money. They were told you can do one of two things with this. You can keep it for yourself, or you can give it away. Guess what researchers found happened in the human brain? What they found is that people who chose to take the money and give it to others and give it away actually had impulses in the brain, speaking of contentment and happiness, where those that kept it for themselves did not. And here's why that's important. Happiness is not an emotion. Regardless of what you may have believed, regardless of what you may have taught, happiness is not an emotion. That thing is not going to make you happy. That that experience is not going to produce enduring happiness. That relationship, that person, is not the answer to your happiness. Happiness is not an emotion. Happiness is a choice we make amidst circumstances that may not make us happy. It is making the right choice in the middle of those circumstances. Back in 1970, before many of you were born, There was a singer, a rock singer, by the name of Stephen Stills, who wrote a classic song that some of you here will remember. The song was entitled, Love the One You're With. How many of you remember Love the One You're With by Stephen Stills? Here's the chorus. If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Not bad theology for a folk rocker. Because listen, at the end of our lives, there are certain things that we wanted we didn't get. There are certain people we love that didn't love us back. There are certain jobs we had that didn't, that didn't last and didn't endure. There were things that happened in our financial situation we had no control over. Our health was struggling when we wanted it not to. And so happiness is not about what you feel. 
Happiness is making the decision in the midst of your life. So, so there's this big lie that the, that the God of happiness speaks to us, and that is that I am entitled to happiness. Here's the second lie, and it feeds right out of the first one. It's this. God exists to make me happy. That's the one that we that come to church every weekend, that's the one we've got to be careful most about. If you, by the way, sit here today and you think that happiness is your entitlement, you have a right to happiness, then it only stands to reason that God exists to make sure that you get what you're entitled to. And when you give your life to God, surely he's going to work overtime to make sure that you are a really, really, really happy person. By the way, if you don't think we've swallowed this lie, just listen to the content of your prayers. Let me say it this way. What we often do is we celebrate and we thank God for answered prayer. And really what we're doing is we're saying, God, thank you. You gave me what I wanted. You gave me what I desired. I prayed for this and I got it. Thank you, Lord. But when was the last time you prayed and you thanked God for an unanswered prayer? Think about it. I think personally that unanswered prayers are more significant than answered prayers are. Because when we thank God for unanswered prayers, we're actually telling God that we love him despite not being happy, despite not getting what we thought we wanted. And my wife and I have talked about this Several times, even over the last couple of years, we are so thankful that God didn't answer the prayers the way that we prayed them. We are so thankful that God didn't give us what we thought would make us happy, but God gave us rather what he knew we needed. I'll let you chew on that the rest of today. But when was the last time you thanked God for unanswered prayers? Let me just be clear about this one. God does not exist to make you happy. God exists to make you holy. God is not here because it's all about our happiness. God exists so that we are transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. Now, there's a lot of baggage that people carry on this word holiness. If if you grew up in a church that was very legalistic, uh, that was kind of wrapped around this religious ideology of restrictions and laws. If you grew up in a home that, that had a really iron fist of, of rules and regulations and laws religiously, man, you're going to have a pushback to, to this idea of holy. Because you're going to think holiness is about perfection. It's about performance. It's not. When you think of the word holy according to the Bible, think of the word complete and think of the word whole, W-H-O-L-E. What Jesus and what God exists to do is to make us like his son Jesus. Here's what Romans chapter 8 says. We know that God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance. God knew every one of us in this auditorium. And he chose us to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers And many sisters. What did God have in mind when He gave up His only begotten Son, Jesus? He saw a family, a really, really, really big family with lots of brothers and sisters of Christ, but lots of children that loved Him and served Him that look a lot like His Son, Jesus. Not perfect. 
not in the sense of perfection, but rather in the sense of owning the values and embracing the principles with which Jesus lived out his life. That's exactly why God exists in our lives. Not to make us happy, but to make us holy. So as we bring this talk to a close today, let me give you the secret to enduring happiness. Here it is. Here's the secret. Psalm 40. Happy is the person who trusts the Lord, who doesn't turn to those who are proud and to those who worship false gods. We are most happy, according to the Scripture, when we choose to place all of our faith and all of our allegiance in the Lord and not look to those who choose to follow other gods who choose to follow the God of self or the God of greed or the God of pleasure or the God of perfectionism or the God that we wrap this series up today, the God of happiness. And Jesus, knowing this, in his very first message that he ever delivers, it's actually a series that he gives. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It was either a really, really, really long message or he did it over a series of time and we have it condensed. Whatever the case may be, Jesus' very first public talk he ever gives is built on this idea of what true happiness is. Why? Because he knows that we as human beings are in search of something that's elusive, something that we're never going to find this side of eternity. And so he says in this thing, this passage that we call the Beatitudes, one author calls it the Be Happy Attitudes. I like that. Here's what it says, Matthew 5. Those who know there is nothing good in themselves are happy because the holy nation of heaven is theirs. Those who have sorrow are happy because they will be comforted. Those who have no pride in their hearts are happy because the earth will be given to them. Those who are hungry and thirsty to be right with God are happy because they will be filled. Those who show loving kindness are happy because they will have loving kindness shown to them. Those who have a pure heart are happy, because they will see God. Those who make peace are happy, because they will be called the sons of God. Those who have it very hard for doing right are happy, because the holy nation of heaven is theirs. You are happy when people act and talk in a bad way to you, make it hard for you, tell bad things and lies about you, because you trust in me. The God of happiness speaks two lies. I'm entitled to happiness, and God exists to make me happy. And what we need to do is we need to come and bring the God of happiness to the Lord and say, God, at the end of the day, these two gods cannot coexist. Happiness only will come from me trusting in you alone. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.